Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to the History of England. Episode 98, The Disinherited. Last week then we heard about how 17-year-old King Edward took power back from his mother and her lover Roger Mortimer. I think you will agree that he did this, in the words of Monty Python, very much according to his own idiom. He snuck through the tunnels of Nottingham Castle late at night with a bunch of mates and took the throne back for himself. Love him or loathe him, Edward III is neither wuss nor pussy. So there he is, our new king. He's got through the initial shock of getting rid of Mortimer and blamed him for all the woes of the first three years of his reign. What's he really going to be interested in? How is he going to rule? What manner of king is he going to be? The 1330s, to an extent, are a bit of a forgotten decade history book-wise. The big thing will be about the struggle with the Scots, and we'll get a smidgen of the setup for the Hundred Years' War this episode, but generally that's what makes it into all but the most specialist of history books. But the decade actually tells us a lot about Edward and the things that were most important to him. Number one for Edward, now and forever, is the image of the king. Which is unsurprising, after all, he is one, and the monarchy has just been through something of a rocky period. Also, Edward is a young lad. He's a warlike, energetic, tall, out-for-a-good-time, one-of-the-lads kind of guy. Basically, the world could potentially be his lobster. So really, the world of administration and good government are not uppermost in his mind, which is kind of reflected in much of the following decade. He doesn't get a lot of royal attention, which is not necessarily a good thing. No, once out from behind his mother's skirts, out from underneath the tyrannical fist of Mortimer, the things burning on the teenager's mind are about the humiliations that have been visited on his royal dignity while he's been forced into submission and forced to submit to things quite against his adventurous nature. And now he's going to have to put these things right. Top of this list of burning humiliations was the shameful Treaty of Northampton in 1328 after the shamefully inept Scottish campaign of 1327. In Edward's mind, the treaty had been a humiliating surrender of his royal rights. He had no thought in his mind that his grandfather Edward I had been a meddling, dishonest land grabber, and that therefore the Treaty of Northampton had just put that right. Plus, he'd be well aware of the sighs and moans of a large number of powerful and less powerful magnates and barons who had been forced by the treaty to give up their rights to lands in Scotland that they'd supposedly or theoretically held under Edward I and which the blessed Bruce had taken from them by force of arms. That lot had also been absolutely horrified by the Treaty of Northampton 
and they called themselves the Disinherited. Another burning humiliation on the lad's mind would have been their relationship with France and the French king, Philip VI, so-called the Fortunate. Though really, after 1346, he should have been renamed Philip the having been given a right old kicking. But never mind, Philip the Fortunate sounds so much nicer. Philip of Valois was called the Fortunate because he had managed to inherit the French throne after a rather remarkable series of royal deaths, and in the face of the fact that Edward's own claim was closer by blood than his own. A few things would have been irritating Edward. The first was the Treaty of Paris in 1327. That had made peace between the two kingdoms, costing England the slightly humiliating price of 50,000 marks. Handing over a large part of the duchy of Aquitaine called the Agenais, and paying homage. True enough, if Edward did said homage, then there would be a retrospective rebate of 50,000 marks. And in 1329, Edward had actually had to pay that homage to the 37-year-old Philip. There was, however, something rather hooky about the ceremony. We know what's supposed to have happened, because there's an English document which describes it. The ceremony described by this document all started by the French king's rep, Mille de Noyer, telling the English lot that his king wasn't about to let the English king have anything his predecessor wouldn't give him. The Bishop of Lincoln responded by saying, Yabu sucks, the English king isn't about to give up any rights he held, so you can stick that in your pipe and smoke it. With the diplomatic niceties out of the way, the ceremony apparently went ahead. Here's the key line about what happened. And then, when the hands of the King of England were placed between those of the King of France, the latter kissed the King of England on the mouth. This could be the first recorded example of the French kiss, and was followed by a slightly mealy-mouthed statement of homage. So, what's the hooky part then? Well, more than one chronicler claims that actually there was only a kiss, no hand-placing and Edward scuttled back over the channel like a scared rabbit. However, hated or loathe it, Edward in 1331 was back over in France again, slipping over this time incognito, dressed up as a merchant, and meeting up with Philip. The probability is he was putting his hands into the right places this time, having decided that there was no choice. But this look-mum-nose-hands debate is of course relevant to what happens a few years later, and the claim to the throne of France. So while Edward is being forced to put his hands places he doesn't like, Philip, meanwhile, is becoming the bona fide, honest-to-goodness, no-poo hero of the Western world. Do you remember all that stuff we had about the Battle of the Golden Spurs in 1302, when a bunch of Flemish oiks had pooped on the collective head of the flower of the French nobility? Well... At the Battle of Cassel in 1328, Philip VI had pooped right back and put an end to all this oiks-on-top stuff, putting the Count of Flanders right back up where he belonged, where the fresh winds blow and the eagles fly. At home, his wife Joan the Lame was proving anything but lame in her management of the kingdom as regent, so that was all going jolly well to boot. But the icing on the cake, the final insult... The ultimate irritation 
was that the great French poser had then declared he was going on crusade to save the entire Christian world from the sandal of the infidel. All of this made Edward feel understandably cheesed off and left him with an acute sense of underachievement. Something had to be done. And that something was all about your King Arthur. Now we've warbled on about King Arthur and his cursed round table and his chivalric knights and all that until the cows have come home, had a good old milking and spent the night out on the moors again. But look, gentle listeners, this was the very stuff from which the 18-year-old Edward was made. Handsome warriors, high-born noble ladies, pageantry, display, splendour, glory and, without doubt, rubbing your opponent's nose firmly in the brown stuff. This was what knights were about. This was what kingship was about. This is what would restore the reputation and power of the English crown. But most of all, this was what Edward was all about. So in the absence of a glorious war, in the early 1330s, Edward threw himself into court life with some relish. Never underestimate how much fun it was being an 18-year-old King of England in the days of chivalry. In the words of his contemporary chronicler, Sir Thomas Grey, So this king led a gay life in jousts and tournaments and entertaining ladies. These jousts and tournaments were for a wide range of groups and audiences and they really pushed the boat out. For the games at Guildford in January 1331, Edward had canvas and Spanish wool made into the hair and hides of men and deer, maybe to stage mock hunts. For the same event, He had banners and pennants made for the opposing armies. There were mock animals and mythical beasts. It's quite likely that these events were held at least monthly. And they were also, without doubt, a big opportunity for the women of the court to prance around in rich and extravagant display. In June 1331, there was another tournament in Stepney to celebrate the birthday of his first son, Edward, later to be known as the Black Prince. At the celebration, a chap called Robert Morley and 15 mates, all dressed up in green cloaks decorated with golden arrows, and challenged all comers to take them on. In September the same year, William Montague held a celebration at Cheapside in London. Edward joined his friends and other knights, and they all dressed up as Tartars and led a procession. The procession also included, quote, the most noble and most beautiful women of the realm. In this case, these women included the merchant's daughters, which were something of a departure for the English, but meat and drink for the Queen, where in Hainault this was par for the course. All the women were dressed in red velvet tunics and white robes, i.e. sporting the colours of the Cross of St George. But each woman was also led by a silver chain attached to the knight's right hand, which sounds just ever so slightly kinky. We also have loads of records of Edward spending vast amounts of money, not just on his tournament kit, which he definitely does do, but also clothes for small groups of men, just like knights of the round table. And just like Edward I, one of Edward III's actions was to whip off down to Glastonbury like a rat up a drain to soak up the legend of Arthur. In his mind, Edward was the new Arthur. The point I'm trying to make with all of this is that Edward was a young lad off the leash, and now he's having a hooli. Fine. But there is also a serious purpose behind all of this. Your medieval man expected and applauded this magnificence. 
the medieval ruling class needed the king to lead and create a sense of their community and mission. And Edward was desperate not just to have fun, but to build his own mystique to prove he was every bit as cool as the King of France. I would guess no one quite believed that yet, but they will. In time, they will. And one more point. We'll come back frequently to accusations that Edward's court was licentious, and that Edward himself was the happy or unhappy victim, depending on your viewpoint, of the temptations of the flesh. Many of these accusations are focused on two things. Firstly, French propaganda and monkish chronicles were keen to make a point. This includes an extremely unlikely accusation that Edward raped the Countess of Salisbury. And secondly, there was the shadow thrown by Edward's affair and domination by Alice Perez after the death of Philippa near the end of his life. So it's supposed that Edward had lots of affairs, and maybe he did. But actually, we do not know of any specifically during his long, and to all intents and purposes, happy and successful marriage with Philippa of Hainault. So it's a bit unfair to make all those accusations. So, now at last, to the disinherited then. Hands up everyone who remembers John Balliol. He was the man agreed by the Scots to be King of Scotland, but whose accommodation with the English and Edward I's ham-fisted policy had resulted in replacement by Robert Bruce. John had left for France, very probably with some relief, and he'd had a son, Edward, in 1281. Edward Balliol lived in the Tower of London and on his father's estates in France, occasionally checking in with the English and the progress of the war with Bruce. And then wham! Along came the Treaty of Northampton, and Edward's visions of kingship were dead and buried. Now, many men would have retired to their garden sheds and made a podcast, but Balliol was made of sterner stuff. Bruce died in 1329, and his five-year-old son David succeeded under the regency of the Earl of Murray. So Balliol saw his chance. At his side was a man called Henry de Beaumont. Beaumont had fought at Bannockburn and ever since had been trying to regain his lands. And Beaumont swore he had the support of the powerful Donald, Earl of Mar, in Scotland. And then, as it happened in 1332, Mar became the new guardian of Scotland, so even better, a gimme, surely. And meanwhile, Balliol had the forces of the disinherited, like the Earl of Athol and a bunch of adventurers, men like the northern landowner Thomas Uhtred, and for the first time the name Walter Manny enters our story. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Edward, meanwhile, was constrained by the treaty not to outwardly offer support to Balliol. As if that made a difference, Edward issued an official letter forbidding English help, told the sheriffs to ignore it, and sent the adventurers on their way. So Julie, in August 1332, after the worst of the midges had gone, obviously, Balliol, 
88 ships and an ever so slightly paltry 1,500 men arrived off the coast of Fife and landed at a place called Kinghorn. Off they then set northwards over the Kingdom of Fife towards Perth, hoping to gather support as they went, and presumably to meet up with their pal Donald. Donald Marr was indeed waiting for them near Perth with a massive army of 10,000 men or more. Unfortunately, he had no intention of using this massive army to help Balliol. In fact, it turns out he was not a happy bunny at all when he saw Balliol and a bunch of hairy English archers turn up in his hood. It turns out that the Earl of Mar fully intended to mash Balliol's army and cut him into very small pieces. And as it happens, the only reason he didn't do so immediately, when Balliol's poxy army turned up in front of him on the 10th of August, was that he was waiting for even more men, along with the Earl of Dunbar. Given the numbers, morale in the disinherited camp was not good. But desperate times call for desperate measures, so as Mar sat waiting and his men sat drinking, in the dead of night, Balliol and his men crept over the River Erne and attacked, slaughtering men without number in their tents. Imagine their horror then when, come the morning, they found Mar and the rest of his army looking at them grumpily, still many times their number, and now they were really, really miffed. The resulting battle of Duplin Moor is surprisingly important because in this pretty unremembered battle, we see first sight of a formation and tactic that was to bring terror and defeat to the most powerful nation of Christendom in a few years' time. The tiny English army adopted a simple, defensive formation. Men-at-arms dismounted in the middle, archers on the flank. Now the Scots were immensely confident. They had the numbers, and they'd now been kicking English asses for decades. This would be a walk-in-the-park job done. And so on they came, their famed skiltrons all higgledy-piggledy in their eagerness to get at the English. On the flanks, the English archers poured arrows into them, and the Scots didn't like it, so they shied away from them, squishing themselves into the middle of the field. And by the time the Scots had reached the English men-at-arms, much of the momentum of the charge had gone, and they impaled themselves on English pikes. But meanwhile, behind them on came the rest of the Scots, pushing from the back, so that there was no retreat at the front. And so they were slaughtered. By the end of the battle, the Earl of Mar, thousands of Scots and Scottish confidence, lay broken on the field of battle. As far as Balliol was concerned, it was the greatest comeback since Lazarus. He was crowned King of Scots in September. His success, however, was short-lived. He had little real support in Scotland, the disinherited by definition meant trouble for a lot of local lords, and his scheme to give most of southeastern Scotland to Edward can't have helped his brand positioning, as it were. But nonetheless, Balliol captured the new guardian of Scotland, Andrew Murray, and retired to celebrate Christmas in Annan, southwest Scotland, feeling mighty chipper. So when the Earl of Murray turned up and surprised him there, looking for revenge, he must have been disappointed. Balliol was completely taken unawares and barely escaped with his life. But escape he did by crashing through a partition wall. He was forced to flee back to England, leaving his brother Henry dead behind him. For Edward, this was just what he'd been waiting for. A chance to revenge the shameful peace. A chance to get himself a bit of glory. Unfortunately, the Parliament he called in January 1333 at York 
was cautious. They saw no need for a new war with Scotland, but Edward was not to be deterred. By April 1333, Edward was in front of the walls of Scottish-held Berwick at the start of the first campaign that he could really control. At the end of June, he was still there. But Berwick was, true to say, so close to falling that Alexander Seton, the Scottish castellan, agreed a truce. If the castle wasn't relieved within 15 days, he would surrender. In surety for his goodwill, he gave his lad as hostage. Now Seton had already lost two sons fighting the English. Thomas was his last and his youngest. The Scottish army under Douglas arrived 14 days later. Edward was livid and claimed that Seton should have surrendered anyway since the English army had still not been driven away from the walls. So he built a particularly high gallows and hanged the lad in front of his father's horrified eyes. And now we learn that Edward was not a paper warrior, just one for the finery and the fun of chivalry. He was a brutal warrior capable of all the ruthlessness that his grandfather had possessed. There were knickers underneath the fur coat of chivalry. The Scots, meanwhile, had rediscovered their confidence. Donald Marr had been a plonker, they reasoned, and they would show this young lad, Edward, that the Scottish oatcake could make toast of the English leopard. Their army of 1,200 men-at-arms and 13,500 spearmen crossed the river and advanced towards Berwick, towards Edward's smaller army. Edward had organised his army defensively at a place called Halidon Hill. Hill is something of a misnomer. Halidon, gentle slope, would be more accurate. But nonetheless, the Scots would have to cross a marsh to get to the English. Edward had learnt the lesson of Duplin Moor. And in fact, Henry de Moment was with him to make sure he did so. So the English army was organised into the traditional three battles. The Earl of Norfolk commanded the right, Edward the centre and Balliol the left but all the English knights were ordered to dismount. There'd be no pratting around with war horses while he was in command, and archers were assigned to each battle. As the Scots advanced, Edward gave his battle speech. As reported, this seems to have been a good old traditional trash talk. They're nothing more than rebels and have butchered women and children and desecrated the houses of God. And then a bit of rabble-rousing with the line, quote, the day of our revenge has arrived. With an admittedly slightly weak finish in With your help, we will be a match for them in this conflict. But then he hopped off his horse and joined the line on foot. As I say, Edward was a warrior king. The Scots lumbered forward over marsh and uphill. As they did so, the English archers poured a hail of arrows into their faces again, so much so that the Scots were forced to turn their heads away. Really, the thing was pretty simple. Once again, by the time they reached the English line, they were knackered or dead. Despite this, the battle went on all day. It was no easy victory. But in the end, they were cut down by the English. And as they fled, Edward mounted his knights and the butchery started. The defeat was devastating to the Scots. Most of their leaders and the earls were captured and killed, and Berwick was taken. But unfortunately, Edward was to prove that winning the peace is often much harder than winning the war. Basically, he left Balliol to finish the Scots off 
and set off home for another hoolie, duly celebrated at Wallingford over Christmas. Balliol, meanwhile, was trying to convert Halidon Hill into something more lasting. David II had escaped and gone to live at Chateau Gaillard in France. Balliol managed to form a basic administration, set up some new sheriffs and even hold a parliament in March 1334. But a number of castles were still held against him. At heart of all this was the same major strategic issue he'd had before. He had to reward the disinherited with the lands of the Scots, so there was absolutely no reason for the Scots to support him. Now, meanwhile, Edward really wasn't being helpful. He demanded the deal they'd discussed before the war, most of Lothian and southeastern Scotland, to be passed over to England. And in June 1334, this was duly completed and homage done. Edward felt jolly pleased, no doubt. But Balliol looked like the King of England's poodle. And meanwhile, Philip of France was demanding to know why Edward was persecuting David, in his eyes, the rightful King of Scotland. By August 1334, Balliol was back in England with his begging bowl. There were arguments between the disinherited. Henry Beaumont was besieged. The Earl of Athol had been captured. It was all turning to poo and becoming clear that, just like his dad, he could only survive with English support. Edward intended to give that support. His pecker well and truly up. His confidence high. But the campaign of the winter of 1334-5 was a complete flop. The weather was rubbish, the Scots had learned their lesson and reverted to type. They stayed well out of the way. And as a result, Edward had to retreat in January 1335. Six months later, in June, he was back. The armies of Edward and Balliol burnt and devastated their way across Scotland and by August they'd reached Perth and Scottish lords were riding into the English camp to submit. Despite this, Edward was under intense pressure from the French. Philip demanded that Edward submit his argument with David of Scotland to arbitration. And then, outrageously, he declared even more active support for the Scots. He would send an army. French ships raided southern ports of England, Southampton and Portsmouth. And then suddenly Edward was faced with the prospect of war on two fronts. Now here we have two arrogant, successful and warlike medieval kings puffing out their chests and rattling their sabres. Philip expected Edward to submit. He had met him when he was 18 and made him do homage. And after all, France was the most powerful kingdom in Christendom and Edward was his vassal. But Edward wasn't the same man that had met Philip four years ago and he burned to show the world his mettle. This quarrel the threat of a French-Scottish alliance was a big motivator for the war that followed. As it happens, by September 1335, the immediate French threat had receded, the Scots appeared pretty much subdued, and everything looked pretty rosy. So Edward felt comfortable to return to England, leaving the smallest garrisons in Scotland he thought he could get away with. The French threat had receded because Philip VI was desperate to go on crusade and it was pretty clear that there was no point hopping off to the Holy Land with the threat of war back home. And so Philip came to the negotiating table. The deal was this. Balliol had no children and his brother was dead. So given that the remaining Scottish rebels, led by Andrew Murray, surrendered to Edward, then Balliol would be king until his death 
while David would be Balliol's heir. Cushti. All that was needed was that the twelve-year-old David agree. But David, or someone in his entourage, did not agree. And they refused the deal. This was without doubt trouble, because the Pope shrugged his shoulders and told Philip the crusade was off. So now we have a Scottish group that wouldn't negotiate, an offended and grumpy English king, and a disappointed and furious French king. This is not a recipe for peace and harmony. And so of peace and harmony in 1336 there was none. Philip was determined now to make this annoying English tick suffer, and he persuaded his council to organise an army to invade Scotland. By June 1336, Scotland was in flames, as Edward destroyed every bit of sustenance around Scottish eastern ports that would help a French army. Now possibly these are good military tactics, but they can hardly be a good way of winning the hearts and minds of the Scots for Balliol. Meanwhile in the south, Edward had established a council to prepare for French attack into England, and as the French fleet raided and burnt their way across the south coast, panic once again grew. In September 1336, Edward came south to talk to his council and prepare an army to meet the French. A big army was planned and money raised from the Bardi and the Peruzzi. As it happens, the threat from France was once again no more than the pain of raids along the coast, and by October 1336 the army had been sent home, but elsewhere the news was less good. The Scots were now in open revolt, and the castles held by the English once again beleaguered outposts. The French threat, much more immediately, had now been redirected and was being felt in Gascony. By 1337, then, Edward had been through the highs and lows. After Halidon Hill, the capture of Berwick and the restoration of Balliol to the throne of Scotland, he must have thought he could do no wrong. But just four years later, the whole thing had collapsed around his royal ears, and it was as though Halidon Hill had never happened. In fact, it was worse than that, because now he had the French at his throat to boot. Now they say you can only know the measure of a man when you see him in a crisis. So by that dictum, we're about to find out Edward's measure. Next week, then, we'll hear about the start of the Hundred Years' War. Though before that, we'll have a piece about Edward's domestic politics in the 1330s too. Something to look forward to, then. And meanwhile, my thanks to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or who joins the Facebook group. And indeed, to all of you for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.